Uh, my name is Lucas Cooper. I'm the lead pastor here. It's great to see you this morning. Some of you are very familiar faces to me. Some of you are new. And uh, no matter kind of how long you've been here, if you're brand new with us today, if you've been here for a long time, I'm just really, really glad that you're here. Uh, as we sang those songs uh, in the first service this morning and then even just now, I was thinking about all of the language in the songs that we sing at Christmas that really doesn't make any sense at all unless it's contextualized. When we sing about uh, he will reign on the throne of David, like what does that mean? Or the seed of Jesse or you know, all of these things that we talk about at Christmas time, even in, in these songs, um, if, if you pull it out of context and you don't understand kind of the trajectory of God's grand redemptive story and his plan for his creation, then those things about Jesus that we just sang about and we sing about every Christmas don't make really any sense. And so our hope is, in the context of this series that we're launching into today called Thread, is that you'll see that Jesus is the common thread that runs through every story throughout the whole scripture. And some of us, even uh, especially those of us who have been around church for a long time, we begin to understand the Old Testament as kind of this mosaic of stories that are put together, and they each kind of have a moral to them or a life lesson, you know, trust God more, don't sleep with prostitutes, that kind of thing, you know, and, 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 and what we don't understand is that really what God wants to tell us a story about is, is the way that he created and why he created and what he did that for, and, and that Jesus is the common thread that runs through that complicated sophisticated, but uh, ever so simple even, tapestry that is God's gracious redemptive plan. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And today's the first Sunday in the Advent season. That word Advent simply means the arrival of a notable person, event, or thing. And so today we kind of begin this journey of worship towards Christmas Eve where we celebrate the arrival of the most notable person in all of human history. So our songs today, like the one you just heard, Waiting Here for You, the songs that we're going to conclude with this morning in worship are songs of expectation, they're songs of anticipation to kind of create that sense in our hearts that we're waiting for Jesus, the Redeemer. And our prayer is that you would join us for the entire Advent season and all the way up through Christmas Eve and learn uh, about and discover the fulfillment of that expectation on Christmas Eve. And again, I'm especially excited today because we're starting this series called Thread. And I believe that the content of this series, Thread, is critical for understanding the message and mission of Jesus and then by extension, the message and mission that you and I are supposed to live out here on the planet. So before we go any further this morning, let's pray. I'm just going to ask God to open our eyes and ears to what he has to say today. God, all creation is waiting here for you. As we'll talk about this morning and really God, our souls, our, our, our entire being, our bodies, our, our, our minds, all of it, God, in eager expectation waiting here for you. God, I pray that as we talk about your grand redemptive plan and your story of grace from start to finish today and over the next several weeks, that you would open our eyes and ears, that you would open kind of 
that spiritual part of us to receive from you that which we are waiting for, and it's you. Speak now, Holy Spirit of God. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Have you ever uh, tried to jump into a really complicated movie like halfway through? You ever done that before? And I'm not talking about a stupid movie like Dumb and Dumber. I'm not talking about that. You can jump into that one halfway through and you're not any more lost than those two idiots are in that movie. But I'm talking about, I'm talking about a complicated movie with a rich storyline and complex characters and sophisticated relationships. Can you imagine jumping into like Les Mis or Braveheart or like Lord of the Rings at the halfway point? You know, if it was Lord of the Rings, you're thinking, Frodo, I saw that exact same ring in a Sky Mall catalog. Like, you could just order that ring from a catalog, and all this mess with dragons would be over. But no, you've got to have that ring because it's precious, or whatever it is, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense to you if you jump into it halfway through. You get maybe a part of the picture. There's action and, in, and intensity, and it's entertaining. But we were really meant to enjoy the film from start to finish. And we don't get the full picture unless we start at the beginning. So if you want to know what's going on, you have to start watching the movie from, say it with me, the beginning. You have to start watching the movie from the beginning. There's no substitute for the beginning because the beginning establishes purpose and setting and people and characters and drama and relationships and tension and longing and anticipation and all of those things that make epic stories so captivating. And listen to me, in a lot of ways, God's true story, his true story of redemption is very similar to one of those epic films. There's purpose and characters and relationships and tension and longing and anticipation and each moment, each chapter in his story of redemption builds on the one before it. So if you pop in at the halfway point and check it, Christmas is right about the halfway point. If you pop in at the halfway point, you get part of the story, and it's a great part of the story, by the way. It's the climax of the story. It's the best part of the story, but you don't get all the really great stuff that makes God's redemptive story so spectacular. You have to start in the beginning. And it's interesting because right at the outset of John's story of Jesus, the Apostle John, as he writes this biography of Jesus called the Gospel of John, he tries to give us a clue that we need to start in the beginning. And it's not like he drops breadcrumbs and hopes, for us, hopes that we start in the beginning. He pulls out a huge flashing light to point us to the beginning, and John starts his Gospel this way, in the beginning. Thanks for being super obvious, John. That's really, we appreciate that. He writes, in the beginning, keep reading, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. We'll learn later in John's biography of Jesus that the Word is Jesus. He's a meta, it's a metaphor for Jesus. So he's talking about Jesus here, and he says that Jesus, or the Word, was with God in the beginning. And the Word was God. He was, say it with me, in the beginning. 
with God. Jesus seekers and Jesus followers, John is doing us a huge favor here by kicking off his story of Jesus with those three little words, in the beginning, and he repeats them in verse 2. What's so important for us to know? What's so critical? Well, John wants us to know first that the arrival of Jesus on planet Earth was not the beginning. The arrival of Jesus on planet Earth was not the beginning of God's redemptive story because if it was the beginning of God's redemption story, then John would have just started his gospel with these words. This is the beginning. But he doesn't. He refers to another beginning, the actual beginning. John's story of Jesus is not the beginning of the Jesus story. It's a new chapter, but it's not the beginning. The second thing that John tells us is that even though Jesus' arrival on the planet 2,000 years ago was not the beginning of God's redemptive story, Jesus was indeed there in the beginning. Jesus says that, or John says that Jesus was in the beginning with God, and he was God in the beginning. Now, that's critical. The story of Jesus doesn't begin in Bethlehem. It begins in the beginning where Jesus was God and was with God in the beginning. Got it? Good. So if Bethlehem isn't the beginning, and Jesus was in fact in the beginning, and the beginning is a critical part of our story, what's your next logical question? Well, when's the beginning? I'm so glad that you asked. If you have your Bible open, I want you to flip all the way back to the beginning, to a book called Genesis, which means beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. And you and I are going to read together three very familiar little words. It's up here on the screen. Would you say these words with me? In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Here it is, the actual beginning. And listen, listen close now. It's not coincidence or accident that John's language in John chapter 1, verse 1 mirrors the language in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That, just, that didn't just happen. John did that on purpose. He wants to signal to us. He, he, he purposefully appropriates this language because he wants to be sure that we, his readers, understand that the story of Jesus begins before time even began. Friends, popping into the Jesus story at Bethlehem is a lot like popping into an epic film at the halfway point. It just does not paint the full picture of God's redemptive plan. We have to start in the beginning, and this is it. And now I know when the beginning was. What was happening in the beginning? It's right there in Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth. This is what was happening in the beginning, God created all things, fish, birds, planets, rocks, dirt, air, sun, moon, stars, grass, protons, neutrons, and eventually humankind. Now, when we talk about creation, many of us ask questions like, how 
did God do that? Or how long did it take? Or when did it happen? And those are interesting questions and they're fun to talk about, but the author of scripture, and since the scripture is inspired by God, this is God himself, is far more interested in answering another set of questions than when or how or how long. God and the scripture is most interested in answering the question, who created? Now, we've already established that. We've established that God created and he, that's Jesus, was God and was with God in the beginning. But the next question is absolutely critical as well. Who, what, where, when, and why? Why did God create? Let's ask this question a couple of different ways so we completely understand the question that I'm asking the scripture here. Uh, because the Bible is, is very concerned with answering this question. Why did God create? What was his purpose? What was his vision? What was his goal? Listen, this is, this is critical. Acts chapter, 20, actually, Acts chapter 17, verse 25, that s- says that God needs nothing. So why not nothing? Why something rather than nothing? Why do we exist at all? And friends, the answer to this question, why did God create, really is the critical beginning point in God's work. And without understanding the beginning, we cannot possibly understand that chapter of the story when Jesus arrives on planet Earth. So let's answer our question. Why did God create? Psalm 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky displays his handiwork. Not only is the psalmist telling us what the heavens do, but he's telling us the very purpose for which the heavens exist, to bring glory to God. Psalm 97.6, the heavens declare his righteousness and all people have seen his glory. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the angels around the throne of God forever call out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth is full of his glory. Are you picking up on the why did God create? I once heard a Bible scholar say this, that resounding through the whole Bible from eternity to eternity like rolling thunder is this, God created for his glory. God created for his glory. Even when we get to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and God creates man, he says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. The, the purpose of an image now is to image something. When you see an image on television, the image that you're seeing isn't the thing. It's imaging the thing. Same goes for us. We were made in the image of God. We were created to image God. Seven billion little image bearers running around the planet designed to reflect the image of God. In other words, we too were created for God's glory. God wanted something rather than nothing because something, in fact, all things can and do reflect the glory of God. And that includes us. And check this out. Understand. Understand. This is critical. We don't, we don't glorify God like a microscope glorifies a particle. Like we see a little thing bigger through a microscope. We glorify God like a telescope. A telescope allows you to see something immense for what it really is. 
That's what it means to glorify God. You, me, the cosmos, everything created to magnify the immeasurable glory of God. And in order to show his great glory, God created the world with shalom. Shalom. Now, the reason that I've left this word shalom in its transliterated form, like, I don't know if you know this, but this isn't Hebrew. Does everybody get that? Everybody understands that that's not the original Hebrew word. Hebrew reads from right to left anyway, so it would be totally messed up. But, but the transliterated form in English is shalom. And shalom is more than just peace. And that's how we would typically translate that word in the New Testament. It's typically translated peace. And in the Old Testament, it's typically translated peace. But it's far more than peace. Shalom means harmony. Shalom means wholeness. Shalom means completeness, prosperity, tranquility, and welfare in God's perfect creation. This is how God designed the world with shalom, and that shalom reflected and magnified his glory. One Bible scholar uh, describes shalom this way, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be, and this is how God created all things. And God charged Adam and Eve, his image bearers, to image him in their interaction with his perfect creation. He said, work, create, take joy, experience shalom. This will bring me glory. And for a time, they did. But the unspeakable tragedy is that God's created image bearers Rebelled, And when they rebelled, the shalom and unity that, God, that once brought God glory broke. It fractured. It fell apart. And Paul tells us how severe those consequences are of man's rebellion in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. It's up here on the screen. He says this, For we know that the whole creation, all that God made to give him glory, all of that shalom has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Ask a woman who's had a child without an epidural. She'll tell you how bad that is. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, you and me too, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. God's shalom, the created order, giving God the attention and glory that he deserved, was all destroyed with Adam's rebellion. Now, this series is called Thread because we want you to see how Jesus is the common thread that runs consistently through God's tapestry of redemption. We want you to see that the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, is not just a collection of stories with a life lesson attached. The entire Bible tells a single story of God's purpose and plan to redeem what man wrecked. 
And Jesus is that plan. And God promised Jesus from the very first moment that man's rebellion fractured shalom. You see, immediately after Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they subsequently rebelled, God began to outline the consequences of that rebellion and he began to address all of the parties involved and he begins with Satan. And in those comments in Genesis chapter 3, right from the beginning now, we get the very first glimpse of the common thread of Jesus that runs through the entire scripture, runs through every page. Look what God says to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Get this, this is not like uh, snakes and women won't get along forever. That's not what God is saying here. What he's saying is that there will be an ongoing struggle between Satan and mankind. That enmity, that struggle, that battle will not end here with Adam and Eve. It will make its way down through offspring from generation to generation to generation. And it still exists today. Shalom will always be fractured. Rebellion and sin will always have consequences. Shalom, the way things ought to be, will never be restored until... Keep reading. He shall bruise your, he's talking to Satan. He, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God's using a metaphor here to explain that Satan and the forces of darkness will attack and injure the woman's offspring, but only on the heel. This is not a fatal blow. However, the woman's offspring will eradicate Satan and the forces of darkness by delivering a fatal blow to the head. This offspring of the woman, this promise, is Jesus. In fact, theologians call this comment in Genesis chapter 3 the proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first and evangelium meaning good news about life. This is the first glimpse of the good news. It's the first peek at Jesus. From Genesis chapter 3 now, from the very beginning, this was God's plan. This is the first moment that that common thread of Jesus shows up in God's tapestry that is his redemptive work. The injury that Jesus will suffer on the heel is the cross, but the cross will not hold him down like a bruise to the heel does not hold you down. But in his resurrection, Jesus will strike a blow to the forces of darkness that begins a twofold process of ultimately defeating Satan and restoring shalom. Jesus is the ultimate victor. Jesus is the offspring that will crush Satan underneath his feet. Jesus is the coming king that will eventually and entirely halt the enmity that has plagued creation and humankind since the fall of man. You see, if you pop into God's story of redemption at Christmas, like halfway through, you might conclude that Jesus was the God-man who came to forgive sin and save us. And you'd be right. You'd be right. But you wouldn't be complete. 
But if you watch God's redemptive story unfold from the very first scene, you would understand that in the beginning, God created all things for his glory and instituted shalom, wholeness, harmony, the way things should be. So Jesus' mission when he arrived on the planet was far more than saving us. That's a part of it and a big part of it But God's greater plan is to restore shalom and bring glory to himself. This is why when the Jesus chapter in God's redemption story begins to unfold in Luke chapter 2, the angels announce the long-expected birth of Christ to the shepherds in the field in this way. It's up here on the screen. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Remember I told you that word shalom is translated peace? There it is. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Shalom, wholeness, harmony, prosperity, unity among those with whom he is pleased. Simply put, Jesus came to bring God glory like a telescope that helps us see something enormous, something massive, something immense for what it really is. Jesus came so that you and I might have the opportunity to see the immeasurable God for who he really is. Just, gracious, kind, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Furthermore, Jesus is our second chance at shalom. Our first chance, Adam, failed to live in shalom and rebelled and fractured the perfect world that God made. But Jesus was our second chance and third chance and fourth chance and countless chances upon chances to live in shalom the way things should be, the way God made it. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans chapter 5, Paul explains that we inherited death through Adam, but we can inherit life through Jesus, the second Adam. He's our second chance at shalom. Now I want to talk quickly about these two principles because they profoundly impact the way we understand the message and mission of Jesus but they profoundly impact the way we live and move and breathe and see the world around us as well. So let's ask it this way. If, if God created all things for his glory, created all things to bring him attention, created all things to be like a telescope that magnifies who he is, and then we broke it, and then Jesus came to restore all things to bring God glory, and to give him attention, and to magnify who he is, then what's our mission as Jesus followers? We we bring God glory. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're charged to do. My life should be like a telescope that magnifies the nature and character of God. Jesus himself would say it this way in Matthew chapter 5. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The NLT, the New Lucas translation reads this way. In the same way, you let your conduct be like a telescope 
so that they may see your good works and see the immeasurable God, your Father who is in heaven for who he really is. The most minute sea creature that inhabits the vastest ocean, the smallest atom and the largest star, thunder and lightning, kings and paupers, rich and poor, big and small, all designed to give God glory. And you, you too, your very presence on this planet, your life, your family, your skills and abilities, your money, your time, your speech, your conduct, all things were meant to act as a telescope that magnifies the glory of God. Second, if God designed all things to bring him glory, okay, God designed all things to bring him glory, and we broke it, and Jesus showed up to bring God glory, and now we are supposed to live that out, live out that mission and message of Jesus to bring God glory, and God designed all things with shalom. Unity, wholeness, harmony, prosperity, everything working together. And then we broke it. And then Jesus is our second chance at shalom. He came to restore shalom. As a follower of Jesus, my job is to bring shalom wherever I go, right? If that was his mission, if that was his message to restore shalom, if I'm a follower of his, if I call myself a Christian, which just means little Christ, then my job is to bring shalom wherever I go. All that was lost when shalom was fractured because of man's rebellion, Jesus came to restore. Now, as a follower of his, I'm a shalom bringer in all of those broken contexts. So listen, by way of example, I take care of the environment. I take care of the environment, not because I'm an environmentalist, but because as a follower of Jesus, I'm a shalomist. And, the, and shalom, or the environment, creation, was God's original design. It was part of his shalom. It was part of harmony in this perfect world that we were supposed to live in. So as a shalomist, I need to take care of the environment. Or as a shalomist, I work hard at my job, not because I'm greedy or self-serving, but because work was a part of God's original plan. And as a follower of Jesus, I'm a shalomist, so I work hard. I try to be generous to others. I try to tip well to bring shalom, even at places like Swiss Chalet, which is challenging, but beside the point. I work hard to help repair and restore relationships around me. I enjoy God's provision of food. I laugh with my daughter. I close my eyes and enjoy the sun on my face. I give good hugs, at least I hope I do. I visit friends in crisis. I lift others up with my words. I listen to great music and I exercise all because I'm a shalomist. That was part of God's original plan. Unity, harmony, prosperity. And my job is to carry out that mission and message of Jesus that he came to restore and redeem those things. You ever, uh, you ever start a movie halfway through and watch it till the end, and then go back and, and, and re-watch it from the very beginning? Like, you know the second half of it, but you don't know how it started. Have you ever done that before? Like, you already know how it ends. You know that Batman wins, you know, whatever. You, you know how everything gets resolved, but, but you want to go back and watch it th- from the beginning. Some of you don't like to do that. I really love doing that. I don't care. Like, I love just knowing, like, tell me what the end of the movie is. I'm still going to watch it anyway. I love that. I don't know why. It takes the edge off the tension for me or something. I don't know. Listen, as Christ followers, we're a little like that. 
we know that Jesus ultimately shows up. That's why we celebrate this season. And we know that his showing up on the planet 2,000 years ago and his second advent, the second time he's going to show up, he's going to restore all things and bring shalom once again and magnify the greatness of God and glorify God in the process. And so we join him in that mission, but all the while, we've seen this movie before. We know how this movie is going to end. So when we rewind to the very beginning, like we did today, we understand the mission of Jesus just a little better, and hopefully, hopefully we understand our own mission just a little better too, to glorify God and to bring shalom wherever we go. But we are ever mindful that the end is already written, that shalom will be completely restored, and God will get glory in the process. Let's pray together. Choir and worship team, if you guys would come back up as we uh, prepare just to conclude with a couple of songs. God, our prayer today is that we would see you for who you really are. That our lives, our conduct, our speech, our thoughts and affections... God, that even the created world around us, our families, our relationships, all things would act as a telescope to help us see with greater clarity how wonderful you are, how big you are, how immeasurable you are, how immense you are. And that you would get glory, that you would be magnified. God, that we would even join Jesus in his mission on this planet to inaugurate a kingdom and to restore shalom, that we would be shalom bringers, that we would be shalomists wherever we go, that we would forward the kingdom of God and that we would live the message of grace. And God, now as we conclude with a couple of songs that really reflect that sense of anticipation, that eager longing, that groaning with which creation waits as we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and come thou long expected Jesus. Our hearts, God, recognize the brokenness in our world, recognize that the shalom that you created the world to be is not how we experience it. And so we say, come, Emmanuel, come long expected Jesus, restore your kingdom, and restore shalom. And in the meantime, may we join you in your mission wherever we are. In Christ's name, God's people said.